Well, we've had an uh, exciting few days this last week. As Vern already alluded to on Wednesday, we had uh, uh, become aware that, that William was not feeling well, and so Henry and Susie had made an appointment and taken him into the hospital here on Wednesday, and they very quickly were able to diagnose that he had malaria, and not exactly something that we have in Manitoba, but nonetheless, it came with him from Africa. And so being very serious, they rushed him by ambulance to Winnipeg on Wednesday. Uh, We just so happened to be heading into Winnipeg that evening already, attending the Leadership Summit, uh, Leaders Conference there in in Winnipeg the last two days. So Leanne and I were able to bring Felicia along. Zoe and William had gone ahead in the ambulance, and he was able to get the best care possible there at the Children's Hospital uh, very quickly in Winnipeg. So uh, I uh, asked the doctor... Uh, near the end of, of his time there, if where he was at when he came in on Wednesday evening, if it had gone untreated, where would it have gone from here? Like, how, how long would things take? And his reply had been, it could be fatal in a matter of hours. So I don't think he was, I don't think he was trying to scare me. I think he was telling me the truth, uh, that it was at a point where it was very serious uh, and uh, one other thing that spoke to how serious it was was the fact that they only had a limited supply of their best medicine that only came from the states, and they would only give it to the most severe cases, and they gave it to him uh, intravenously to get it in his system as quickly as possible. So we're just so thankful for the way everything came together, the provision, the timing, and that he's responded very well to treatment, and as you saw, he's up here doing just fine here a few days later. So thank you to everyone who prayed, and uh, we're just so thankful to God for his provision. Uh, in these last couple of days, so uh, feeling very grateful this morning. We also want to uh, remember to continue to pray for Gertie and Bert and Lisa and their family as Carl has passed away yesterday, and I know they're not here this morning, but let's remember them in the next couple of days as they uh, prepare for the funeral and be a support to them as well. We, we as a church family, have experienced many losses in these past months, and uh, we, we know what it is to, to grieve together, and yet we feel the Lord's strength and comfort as we, as we pull together, and so let's continue to do that. Would you now bow with me and let's lift our, our hearts together to the Lord in prayer. Father, our hearts are grateful this morning for your provision, for the way that you have provided for William this past week, provided for healing. We thank you. Thank you, Father, for your hand of mercy. Father, we pray for your compassion, your comfort, your strength to be with Gertie, uh, to be with, with Bert and Lisa, to be with the extended families and children as they are even now grieving the loss of Carl. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would be extra near to them right now and help them to, to sense your presence and feel your peace. We thank you, Lord, that we have a living hope in you through faith in Jesus Christ that Carl is is with you. His soul has been seen into your presence, and thank you for that great hope that we have, even as we, even as we consider his loss and his passing from us here. Father, we thank you for the great work that you're doing in Bible camps across this province this summer. We pray that that work would continue. We pray that, uh, especially at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp, as we are heavily invested there, we have many people uh, who have volunteered of their time and ability and and resources towards that ministry. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless. pray that you would continue to provide every spiritual blessing, physical blessing, 
and that, Lord, the, the harvest would be that in, in young lives hearing the good news about Jesus and having their lives changed as a result of experiencing your love firsthand. And so we pray that that would continue even this week. I ask, Lord, as well, that as I, I prepare for speaking in chapel the next week, be with me, guide me, Lord, in my preparations, and we pray for a blessing and a, and a harvest as well. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it will speak to us again, fresh and new, this morning. And so I pray that you would speak through me and that the words would be yours. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today we are continuing our series entitled Prepared to Give an Answer, in which we are studying the field of apologetics. Apologetics is simply the term used to describe giving reasons for our faith or making a defense of the faith. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we are instructed, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Just to recap for those of you who weren't here for the previous installments and to remind those of you who were, in part one of our series we learned that through the use of apologetics, we can help remove barriers to people placing faith in God. There are often barriers that people have. But as we help remove barriers, we must also remember that we can't argue someone into placing faith in God. For though it appears to be an intellectual battle, it is a spiritual battle. And so as we equip ourselves through study, we must also depend on the work of the Holy Spirit to speak through us. And in doing so, we must not be swayed by the desire to simply fit in, but we must speak the truth, we must seek to discern the motives of the person we are answering, and we must be creative to speak in stories and analogies in a way that the listener can understand. In part two of our series, we ask the big question, why does God allow evil? And we learn that the short answer to that is free will. When Adam and Eve disobeyed, they exercised their free will, and sin and the evil we see in the world around us came about as a consequence. And so we can see that the responsibility for the ongoing presence of evil in the world is not God, It is our responsibility, for we have chosen to disobey. It's on us. Last week, we asked the big question, how can a loving God send someone to hell? And we learned that the three-part answer is this. Part one, a loving judge must still hand out a just and fair verdict. Two, we are measured by God's standards, not our own. And the third part to the answer is the perfectly loving and perfectly holy judge has provided a way for both justice to be served fully and for the criminal to be pardoned and set free. He has done this through Jesus Christ. However, even having done so, he will not violate our free will. It is still our choice to receive his pardon. And so now this week, we are going to look at another popular question that you will hear in the culture today, which is this. Don't all religions lead to God? You've probably heard this question before, some version of it. Don't all religions lead to God? Don't they just sort of spiral up the same mountain, God's at the top, and we all just find our own pathway to him? In a 2009 airing of the Oprah Winfrey Winfrey talk show, while hosting a panel of spiritual experts and gurus from multiple belief systems, Oprah went on a lengthy monologue saying, quote, One of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live. 
and that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world, that there are millions of ways of being a human being. At this point, she is then interrupted by someone from the audience who asks, then how do we please God? At which Oprah continues with, there are many paths to what you call God. Her path might be something else, and when she gets there, she might call it the light. When the audience member challenges her again, Oprah replies emphatically, there couldn't possibly be only one way. At this moment, another audience member calls out, what about Jesus? What about Jesus, was Oprah's reply, to which the audience member boldly replied, there is one way and only one way, and that is through Jesus. At this, the now indignant Oprah replies, that couldn't possibly be. There are millions of people in the world. There couldn't possibly be only one way. So who's right? Who's right? Is Jesus the only way, or is the view championed by Oprah and shared by millions of others correct? That Jesus is just one of the millions of possible pathways to God. And this is a question that cynics, skeptics, and seekers alike are all asking. Other variations of the same question are, of all the religions that exist, how can it be that only Christianity is true? If God exists, why can't God use all of the different religions to lead people to himself? Now, we could try to answer this question by doing a side-by-side examination of every single religion and belief system in the world, but because you all want to eat lunch, we'll do it the faster way. We'll do it the faster way. We will simply examine Jesus himself. We'll examine him. Because if we examine him, and he is the truth, then by default all others fall away. But if he is wrong, then we need to search for the truth elsewhere. John chapter 14 is our text for this morning. I invite you to turn there with me. As you turn there, I'll give you the context of this passage. The context is that Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room sharing their last supper together. Following the supper, Jesus makes this his farewell discourse to his disciples, where he tells them in chapter 13 of John, verse 33, that he is about to leave them. And the disciples are naturally agitated at this statement. And so Peter asks him, where are you going and why can't I follow you? And when Jesus replied that he could not follow now, but that later he would, Peter made his rash vow that he would follow Jesus to the end, and he would even lay down his life for Jesus. And he then received Jesus' stinging rebuttal in verse 38. Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And so I want you to understand that this is an extremely troubling and confusing setting for everyone involved, including Jesus. For it is only hours from where he will be betrayed, arrested, tried, tortured, and crucified. And so in this setting, seeking to both prepare and comfort his disciples about what is yet to come, Jesus gives them one of his most famous teachings in all of Scripture, John chapter 14 and verses 1 to 4. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to the place where I am going. 
Now these words to us are beautiful and wonderful. These are words of comfort and hope. These are words we read at funerals to reassure our hearts of where our loved ones who have fallen asleep in the Lord have gone to. But as beautiful and wonderful as these words are to us, they were devastating and confusing to the disciples. Their minds simply refused to accept that Jesus would leave them. And even though he had told them this a number of times previously, they still didn't get it. And so finally, Thomas breaks the silence. Verse 5. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Now, I don't want you to miss this. Thomas was still not thinking of Jesus going to heaven. He was thinking that maybe Jesus was going back up to Galilee or or somewhere else, and so he wanted directions. He wanted to know how to find Jesus. You're going away. When can we join you again? But while Thomas was thinking in earthly terms, Jesus was speaking in heavenly terms. And so knowing that later on the Holy Spirit would give them understanding into this, Jesus replied by giving them nothing short of the directions to heaven. He gives them the road map. And this is what he says, verse 7. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So now I'm going to attempt to answer the question, don't all religions lead to God by examining Jesus' three statements about himself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. His first statement, I am the way. Now I don't know about you, but when I'm going somewhere new, I like clear directions. I like specific directions. Have you ever been given directions something like this? It's easy to get to our place. Just head straight past the old tree, turn left at the big rock, right at the red barn, then just past the second slough and the third curve where the fourth gravel lane on the right. But if you see the field of canola on the left, you know you've gone too far. (laughs) Got it, right? Easy. You ever been given directions like that? You ever given out directions like that to your place? Easy. I don't know how many times I've wandered countrysides with directions like that. The only silver lining to it is you get to see more of the countryside and you get to meet the neighbors, which is always fun. But in stark contrast to directions like those that are vague, open to, easily open to misinterpretation, in stark contrast, Jesus' directions, his roadmap to the Father, couldn't possibly have been more clear or concise. The language he uses couldn't possibly be softened or twisted or diminished somehow to fit into Oprah's mushy belief that Jesus is just one of millions of pathways to God. Jesus does not claim to be a way. No, he says, I am the way. The one and only way to God, he says, is through me. I am the way. There may be many other paths, but they're all dead ends. I am the only way that leads to the Father. Unless we believe that we somehow misunderstood Jesus' words, we've misconstrued them somehow, the Apostle Peter later on affirms Jesus' claim in Acts chapter 4, when after healing a crippled beggar miraculously, and the religious leaders are in an uproar as to how he has done this, he says to the religious leaders in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men, by which we must be saved. 
You see, Jesus did not leave any wiggle room for reinterpreting or misconstruing his words as being just one of many pathways to heaven. C.S. Lewis, a great apologist of a previous generation, made the case that there could be only three possible responses to Jesus' words. We must conclude that he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. In Mere Christianity, Lewis wrote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but don't come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He hasn't left that alternative open to us, and he did not intend to. You see, Jesus' claim is exclusive. It is, def- it is definitive. And so if he lied about this claim, then we can safely conclude that not only is Jesus not the only way to God, but that he can't possibly be a way at all. However, if Jesus was telling the truth, and if his life, his teachings, his miracles, his death and resurrection all stand up to scrutiny, then we can safely conclude that not only is Jesus Christ the way to God, but that all other religions can't possibly be a way at all. If Jesus is true, he is the only way. If what he said, his claims are true, he is the one pathway. And all others fall at the wayside. Why? Because Jesus is not included. There could be many good things, many great moral teachings in many belief systems. But apart from Jesus Christ, they all fall short of the Father and they fall by the wayside. Jesus' second statement, I am the truth. So what about the possibility that Jesus was telling the truth, but that there can be multiple truths in the world at the same time? Jesus wasn't lying, it's just his truth wasn't the only truth that exists. Have you ever heard someone say something like, well, that might be true for you, but my truth is... You ever heard that before? This is called relativism, and we live in a relativistic age. Rather than truth being absolute, it is relative, it is malleable, it can change and be twisted. You can hold one truth different from mine, I can hold mine simultaneously, and we can all just get along. We see this type of thinking everywhere in our culture today. We are saturated in it. So much so that most of us don't even see it. But there's places where the absurdity of it rises to our attention and we can't help but laugh. Let me give you one such example. The website townhall.com published an article in April of this year featuring a man named Joseph Backholm, who is the director of the Family Policy Institute of Washington. Backholm had released a video of himself where he had ventured onto the University of Washington campus to speak with students about the recent controversy over the transgender bathroom issue. And the article explained what happened. Backholm unsurprisingly found that the students he interviewed and spoke with on campus were all in favor of having everyone install gender-neutral bathrooms and for allowing transgender students to use whatever locker room they saw fit. 
And so when they all affirmed this viewpoint, when Bacholm went through from this point a menu of identities that he's not biologically capable of assuming, the responses are quite interesting to say the least. As an average five foot nine white male, Bacholm would ask each student these series of questions. What if I told you I was a woman? What would your response be? When each of them affirmed that they would support his statement, he would then ask them, If I told you I was Chinese, what would your response be? At this point, some of them balked. Well, uh, I wouldn't want to tell you you're wrong. I would know you're wrong, but I wouldn't. If you want to believe that, that's fine. But most of them would still affirm his statement. Great, you want to be Chinese? Good for you. You're Chinese. He would then ask them, What if I told you I was seven years old? Well, now at this point, some of them are starting, that's a little weird, a little off, but still a surprising chunk of them said, you know what, good for you, good for you. You know, I would know that you're wrong, but I'd still support your desire to think that you're seven. Then his final question was, what if I told you I was six foot five? What would you say? To this question, one girl who had affirmed everything up until that point finally replied, well, that I would question. And when back home asked why, she laughingly replied, because you're not. To which back home replied, so I can be a Chinese woman, but I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. That's where you draw the line. And she laughingly said, yes, that's where I draw the line. And so back home concluded the video by stating to the camera, it shouldn't be hard to tell a five foot nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? You see, we live in a time where truth is whatever you want it to be, where no one dares to tell someone else that they're wrong, no matter how obvious it is for fear of offending them, for fear of being perceived as somehow intolerant. But yet, we all know that some things are true no matter what we think, say, or believe. If I told you that my truth was that the law of gravity did not apply to me, and I was going to prove this to you by jumping off of a skyscraper, what would you do? You would try to stop me. At least I really hope you would. Right? You just know, like, it doesn't matter how sincerely I believe the law of gravity does not apply to me, when I step off that building, I am going to plummet to my death. You know this to be true. There, there is no reinterpreting this. True is true. This also highlights the universal truth that two contradictory claims cannot both be true simultaneously. So when people ask... Is there really any difference between us and, say, Islam or Buddhism or Judaism? They have not really looked closely at the truth claims involved. Because when one looks closer, we find that these different religions contradict each other and Christianity in many important ways. And it becomes very clear that both of these systems cannot be true at the same time. One of them has to be right and the other one has to be wrong. For example, Buddhism teaches that the ultimate goal is nirvana, where all pain and suffering exist no more. We simply 
are enlightened to the stage of just blissful existence. And the way to reaching this nirvana is by following the eightfold path to enlightenment. In Hinduism, the ultimate goal is also nirvana, but nirvana there is different. Instead of being snuffed out into peaceful nothingness like a candle, nirvana for a Hindu is being reunited with Brahm, the all-pervading force of the universe. And the way to achieve this union is through endless cycles of reincarnation. And depending on how you live, your life determines whether you move up the food chain of life or down. In Islam, heaven is a paradise, including wine, women, song, blissful living. And the way to achieve this blissful paradise is to ironically abstain from all of those things while you're in this world. So you're aiming for that, but you abstain from them here, and that's how you get there. In addition, a Muslim must follow the five pillars of Islam to achieve paradise. Judaism, of course, agrees with everything that we do in the Old Testament. However, Jesus Christ is not their Messiah. They stop short of him being Lord, and that they believe it is through the following of the law of Moses that one obtains eternal life. Jesus was merely a human teacher, or perhaps a prophet at best, but he is not their Messiah. And in complete contradiction to this, the scripture recorded by eyewitness eyewitness, uh, testimony makes these claims. It claims that Jesus fulfilled over 200 specific prophecies, specific ones, not, not vague ones, but very specific ones, like no bones would be broken in his body, his side would be pierced, he would be crucified, he would be marred beyond recognition, all of these things, that he'd be born of a virgin, that he'd be born in the town of Bethlehem, on and on, these specific prophecies foretold hundreds and thousands of years earlier were all fulfilled in one man. Mathematicians have run the odds of all of these things being fulfilled in one man. They are so astronomically high that if I were to try to print out all of the zeros of the odds of one man fulfilling all of those prophecies, if I were to put all of the zeros on the wall, they would barely fit. They would have to be microscopic because the odds are so astronomical of one man fulfilling all of these prophecies, as recorded by reliable eyewitness testimony. They go on to describe that he did so many miracles that even his enemies, the people who didn't believe in him, couldn't deny his miracles. Even the skeptics couldn't deny Jesus had miracle-working power. He also, the the most important linchpin of all, is the eyewitnesses say he rose from the dead. And they went on to say that over 500 reliable witnesses saw Jesus, talked to Jesus, heard him speak, saw him eat, following his resurrection. Over 500 of them. And so, in contrast to all of this, all of these other beliefs, here are the claims of Scripture, based on reliable testimony. And Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the truth, all others fall by the wayside. It is an intolerant statement. It is the most intolerant statement you will ever hear in your life for someone to say, I am the truth. And why is that? Because by its very nature, truth is always intolerant of falsehood. Truth does not tolerate lies. And yes, when we speak the truth, it will offend those who have believed a lie. John chapter 1 says as much. But Jesus was not silent for fear of being seen as intolerant or offending people. And he told us why. Listen to what he said. For you will know the truth, and the truth 
will set you free. Only the truth can set you free. Why did Jesus come to earth? What did he come here for? He came here to set us free. And apart from the truth, there can be no freedom. He came to set us free from bondage to sin so that we could be right with his Father and that heaven could be our home. Heaven simply cannot be accessed without the truth. And it is not a truth of your own making. It is a truth more absolute than the law of gravity itself. Jesus is the truth. Finally, Jesus' third statement. I am the life. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Let me repeat again the emphatic words of Oprah Winfrey. That couldn't possibly be. There are millions of people in the world. There couldn't possibly be only one way. Now, as example, just to to switch our, our minds thinking to another realm, what would happen if someone who has the type of cancer that requires a bone marrow transplant in order to be cured. What would happen in this setting if they harvested at random the bone marrow for the transplant from just any healthy person who was willing? What would happen? If we just lined up people and just picked your healthy, let's take your bone marrow and let's transplant it to this person, what would happen? Many of you know firsthand what would happen. That person would almost, almost without any exception, die. Why would they die? Because not just any old person will do. You see, bone marrow is very, very specific. There are only very few matches of bone marrow between people. In fact, in this room, if we were to all have our bone marrow lined up, chances are very good that not any, except for maybe family members, none of our bone marrow would be compatible with each other. According to the National uh, Marrow Donor Program, they say this, matching donors and patients is much more complex than matching blood types. Doctors match donors to patients based on their human leukocyte antigen, HLA. You medical people can correct me. HLA are proteins or markers found on most cells in your body. Your immune system uses these markers to recognize which cells belong in your body and which do not. A close HLA match between donor and patient is essential for success. Only 30% of patients who need a bone marrow transplant have a matching donor in their families. The remaining 70% must hope that a compatible stranger can be found using the National Registry. And so for someone with cancer in need of a bone marrow transplant, not just anyone will do. It needs to be a match in order to bring them from death to life. Oprah saying there couldn't possibly be only one match wouldn't change reality. Would you want a doctor who took her approach to finding your your marrow uh, donor? Would you want a doctor saying, eh, anyone will do as good as the other? You. We'll pick him. We'll transplant it. If you're the patient, would you want a doctor like that? No, you wouldn't. You would want a a doctor who's as specific as possible, who, who does their research as closely as possible to give you the best chance. Equally, if you, had, if you had a carpenter building you a new house and he said to you, my reality, my truth is that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Okay, that's great. But do you want that guy building your house? <laughs> 2 plus 2 equals 5? We might have some wonky measurements. You see, just because we say something is true or that we believe it to be true doesn't make it so. And so too for people who are dying from a sin problem. 
And they are in need of a heart transplant. Not just anyone will do. It needs to be a perfect match. Not just any old religion or hope or belief will do. It has to be the right one. And Jesus says, I am the right one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I believe it to be so. I believe it to be true. I believe he is the only way to God. Do you. Let's pray. Father, your word is clear. Your word is unequivocal. There is but one pathway to you, and that is through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we can't just dismiss him as a good moral teacher, for his word does not allow that. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. And I believe that you are Lord. That Jesus, you are my Lord, my Savior. You are the way to the Father. That my own good deeds, my own works, no matter what I believe, all amount to nothing apart from you. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would have this truth for each one of us fixed in our hearts, that we would know it to be true and experience it in our own lives. For your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.